Welcome to episode 293 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters here in Los Angeles, also known as The Kitchen Table. This week on the show, oh, it's one of those shows. I am super excited about this one. We have with us Javad Alipour, co-director, writer, and one of the performers of Rich Kids, A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran. Uh, Javad is a, a political theater maker. Um, and and you're going to tell that right off the bat because, you know, a, a show has a flow where, where what we're supposed to do uh, and this is this is this is on me, not on Javad. Where what it's supposed to do is, uh, you know, like, well, tell us about your show, and like, uh, let's get the high level pitch and uh, you know, uh, talk about the process and whatnot. And when I when I get a chance to talk to someone who has um, experience and insight and just a take on things on the world, the way uh, Javad does, um, that is so evident in the work itself, I can't help but just jump into that part of things. So um, it's going to be about 45 minutes <laughs> in the show before we do the, so like, uh, let's talk about the process. Um, because we just get into, we get into the political underpinnings of it. Uh, we get into the world as it is. And that's apt for this show because uh, Rich Kids, uh, A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran, uh, it's not just this incredible piece of theater that made the pivot from being like a multimedia theater piece in physical space to being a show that's delivered uh, via YouTube stream and Instagram. Uh, it's not just that while still managing to like make it be a moment in time, which, which is a thing we don't actually kind of break down, like how they do that, uh, which if you see the show, it's really obvious how they do it. So there's not too much to break down there, but it's also a show about our relationship to time, about, um, income inequality, about sort of generational cycles. There's, there's so much meat on these bones and, like I said, we just dive in and and just start talking about the world uh, as it is. And I'm always happy when we get to do an episode like this. So forgive me. It's my fault if you don't like it. And if you do like it, well, that's all Javad. So there you go on that. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get into the episode in a moment. I want to I wanna give a quick shout out to our latest Patreon backers. You know, this month we're, we're getting super serious about our summer campaign to get to 500 backers, which is a, is a big haul uh, for us because right now at this very moment, as I click on things, we're at 340. So we're at 340 backers at the moment. So we got 160 backers left to go. And I know a lot of you regulars, you, you already give. And so thank you so much for that. And we've got some new backers that we want to say hi to. Our latest backers are Richard Cambier, Brandon Santoro, James Turnbull, 
Andy Barnes, Ira Birch, and Andrea. Thank you all so much for joining up. Uh, obviously, we need even more. And I know so many of you already give. So um, if you uh, do that already, I think the, the thing that could help is please help spread the word if you already pledge. Uh, signal boost the content you rely on, like the rundown, the call sheet, the newsletter, this very podcast. And when we put a call out, signal boost the Patreon call. Um, I don't like banging this pot and pan in public all too much. Um, It's like just facing the, the, the gritty reality of it. But gosh darn it, we did that last week on the social media, and that's why we have the new backers. So we're going to keep on doing that on the regular and hope to build it up, and we need your help to help the, uh, the, the word ring out. And remember, backers get access to stuff that other folks don't, including our weekly review crew recordings, um, which are recorded live in our Discord every Wednesday. And uh, the latest episode was done this Wednesday, and the recording went up last night. So if you like hearing us talk about the immersive theater and immersive experiences of the day, um, then that you want to get access to that. So that's a, that's a backer exclusive these days. And you can do all that and spread the word. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. And our sustaining backers, Ari Hurstend, Brittany, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul F., Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all so much. And remember, we don't have a big like sponsor for the show. We're not opposed to having one. If someone's got a big sponsor they got in their back pocket, please talk to us. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is how I make a living. So uh, such as it is. So thanks for the help. It means the world. It means being able to do do this work. Um, isn't that how it's supposed to go? You do the work, get paid, keep on going? I don't know. I guess now it's just, you know, you, you, you bet on Doge and get out, you know, before it crashes or, or however, whatever the cool kids are doing. <sighs> uh, I'm tempted sometimes. I, I am. I really am. But uh, anyway, all right. So um, speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of rich kids who get their money from dubious sources, um, rich kids: a history of shopping malls in Tehran uh, is about that and about so much more. Um, it, like I mentioned, it it's a multimedia theater piece that plays out uh, the the immersivity, uh, if you will, uh, is really based on um, the interactivity and just the incredibly smart way that uh, uh, Javad and his uh, co-creators use the platforms to have the story unfold uh, in a way that is completely natural to the story that is unfolding. There's some really nifty things they do with those platforms. And I had the pleasure of seeing it at Sundance this past year, uh, during Sundance's big remote. Um, and it's still making the rounds. Um, you know, it's been, uh, all over and it's, uh, we, we get into where it's coming at the end. I, I, I don't remember Javad's going to say that at the end of the show. Uh, it's not in my notes in front of me at the moment. Um, but it will be making its way back here to the United States at some point. And also the nice thing about uh, the current kind of global digital theater setup is uh, it's um, it's it's kind of everywhere all the time. It's just depending on what time you want to wake up. 
So uh, give that a whirl. And uh, Javad's also got a, a new podcast they also talks about at the end. And I'm definitely going to be downloading those episodes. So without further ado, let's get into this week's show. <laughs> Javad, thank you for joining me on the show tonight. Uh, as per your time today, as per mine, gotta gotta love pandemic. It um, it enables all sorts of things. Um, and actually, kind of that's that's where I want to uh, start. Uh, rich kids, correct me if I'm wrong. Rich kids started out initially as like a it was going to be a an in person like multimedia show, right? Do I get that? Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like um, I'm. Uh, you know, primarily known and I'm primarily a theatre maker, certainly over the last few years. I run a company called, not hugely imaginatively, the Javad Alipour Company, which I would say, you know, it does what it says on the tin. And um, we do all kinds of all kinds of uh, theatre-adjacent artistic projects. But one of the things we've been doing over the past couple of years is building this this uh, trilogy of shows, really, which is about the intersection between contemporary technology and contemporary politics. This is the second of that trilogy. Um, like the first part, it comes out of a, a collaboration between me and another artist called Kirsty Hoosley um, in terms of how we like uh, begin our sort of, for want of a better phrase, dramaturgical explorations. Um, and yeah, originally Rich Kids was, um, I think it opened at the Edinburgh Fringe actually in 2019 at the Traverse Theatre. Um, and originally, you you know, you came to see the show and there was me and a, a, another performer called Pevan Sardegian uh, on stage. She, like me, is, uh, you know, partially of uh, Middle Eastern extraction um, and uh, are based in England. And um, we would like sort of talk you through the setup to the show. You would leave your phone on. So you'd be following our Instagram account and we'd have a bunch of projection and other bits and pieces on stage. And we'd do this show in about 70 minutes. How did, how did the decision to take it from that to, and, and we'll, we'll get into what the show actually is, but we'll, sometimes I jump into like the technical stuff first how, to take it from that format to doing uh, a a fully online version of it that's still using, still using people's phones, but delivering, you know, via the live stream and just all, all this stuff and kind of getting people to bounce back and forth between these different formats. How did that come about? Well, look, it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously the pandemic started and um, I don't know if you remember the early days of the pandemic, but, you know, um, actually all too, well. <laughs> all too well, there's some interesting like politics to that. I mean, I think like one of the interesting things in terms of like the art sector or, you know, the creative sector, whatever you want to call it in England. So I was very proud of our industry in the first uh, period of that, you know, um, we were supposed to be the London transfer of the show was happening ahead of some sort of like penciled international touring. So we were supposed to be uh, moving, you know, putting the show up at Battersea Arts Centre, which I'm sure, you, you know, you might mm -hmm. have come across as one of sort of London's most substantial theatres. Oh, yeah. In any case. Um, yeah, we, we were supposed to be playing there. And there was this, literally, we were into kind of re-rehearsals to sort of relearn the show 
in the week before lockdown, we were supposed to be doing that. Um, well, well, the reason I say I'm proud of our sort of sector is because so I don't know how much your audience might have followed what was going on in England at that time vis-a-vis lockdowns. But we were, you know, we have an administration which is uh, certainly, you know, was certainly giving your previous administration a run for its money in terms in terms of like i don't know how to say this politely most brain dead political administration um, one, one could one could say that they they were separated at birth um, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah forcibly and they and the doctors failed to hide the babies exactly um, yeah I, uh, exactly right. And what was interesting at that time was, you know, we had an administration that was talking about, uh, you know, oh, let the pandemic go through, herd immunity, blah, blah, blah. And the reason I say I'm proud of our sector is because actually what you saw in that time was 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 something like the muscle of civil society. Mm. So everyone was pulling their own shows down every, without any promise that it was going to be okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and funnily enough, what, what brought this country into its first lockdown was like, as I say, civil society was like... Uh, people just saying we're not doing it, and and actually, you know, luckily enough, a little bit of pressure from the EU. Um, the French said they would close borders and so on and so on, um, and so uh, and so 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 this this went on. And then if you think back artistically in that first period of of, of shutdown, there was a lot of um, one of the first things people were doing was, was just putting work online in terms of like archives and so on. And, and like a lot of people, like you know, I watched a load of that stuff. I was. Uh, it felt you know you were, you were talking about a, a busman's holiday earlier in terms of um, you know having a background in public radio and stuff. There was a little bit of kind of uh, how do you say catching up on homework that went on. I remember you know watching a whole bunch of work from like the National Theatre or the Schaubühne or these places that I hadn't seen first time. And uh, it came to a couple of months passed, and it came to the point where we should have been opening at Batsy Arts Centre. And look, we, we were in a slightly lucky position because, as I say, the, the body of work I've been building over the past couple of years is about the the the, the, the uh, intersection between contemporary technology and contemporary politics. So it's work that I'm, I'm someone who, are, like, artistically, I'm very interested in form and how the form of telling the story can be in conversation with what the story is about. So we had this, and the previous show we'd made, The Believers Are But Brothers, again, we started out in theatres, but, you know, toured the world, did, you know, Touchwood, found an audience everywhere and did really well. That ended up as, um, you know, we were commissioned by the BBC to adapt that into a film, which we, which we did. And then we made an interactive film out of that that was actually touring cinema, uh, you know, film festivals at the time, smaller film festivals in Europe. And um, I, I spoke with Kirsty, you know, the co-creator of, of Rich Kids. I spoke with a lot of the rest of the team, with my my uh, colleague, and the, my company's producer, Nick Sweeting. And we were like, uh, I think we just, we just thought, you know, the thing is, there's been a lot of cool stuff to catch up with online. But at that period, you know, when, I mean, time runs together, doesn't it? But oh, at God, that period, it yeah. whenever it was, something like August last year, um, there we I'm were like that, by the way something like august yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. how i feel about it too it's like there's this period of time you know so yeah oh my god that's that's in my repertoire now yeah so. yeah, yeah yeah exactly exactly and and we were we, we were like well look we've got a show which on one level is about the nature of time and the nature of history so here's a thing we could do a version of this where it feels important that you all have to watch it at the same time and so that felt artistic, mm-hmm. like it made sense. And it also just made sense in terms of going, we were in the you know the depths of this lock, the first lockdown in the UK. And it was like, it just gives people a feeling of, you know, even if you're at home, the show starts at 7.15 or at 7.30. And because, I mean, you've seen it because of the way it works. You also know other people are watching it then. 
And I think there was something really satisfying, aside from the actual stuff that the work itself is about, there's something really satisfying about being able to share that with audiences. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm really finding, uh, uh, you know, the, the question that has come up this year over and over again is, well, what is what is theater if it's not in the building, right? Like there's the place we go to see theater. Uh, and, you know, and someone like runs around in, in like the site, specific and immersive world like a lot of the theater i go to isn't in a theater it's nothing to do with the building might be in a found space might be outdoors but this there's so many companies grappling with that idea of like well if we don't have everybody you know in this specific space what does that mean and i keep on seeing people come to the conclusion that it's about a sense of community even if that is just sort of a a temporary autonomous zone type of community where for this period of time, this group of people were engaged in this process together. Um, and that that's sort of the quintessential thing. And then that's the thing that like differentiates the practice of theater from, you know, just people watching television at home yeah, because they're yeah. not bound together necessarily. Definitely not in a streaming age when it's like, Oh, when did you watch it? Oh, I watched all 19 episodes. What about you? I just watched the pilot. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. And I think it's it, this is a really interesting question because it gets into the heart of the question of what is the point of theatre, you know, especially what is the point of these the, the the buildings. I, I know that one of the one of the you know one of the great parallels between American and and, and British theatre is that so much resource is is historically tied up with buildings. And I think there's another you know there's another sort of there's another sort of set of parallels of a certain kind of building you know so obviously we 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 have our commercial buildings and so on and so on but but there is there's that other sort of not less commercial part of the scene you know where we which actually my view would be in the US and the UK there are similar trajectories to this slightly different in different ways but so for instance in 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 um in England, we get we get we have like the sort of um, you know the 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 rise of a kind of subsidised by the state um, uh, kind of uh, London and what we would say like London and regional set of theatres where there's a big one in any city of any size, you know, um, that that has its great kind of uh, a kind of heroic moment in the seventies, really. Um, and obviously in the US, there's that there's that there's that whole scene of not for profit producing theatres that uh, you are, one sort of thinks as the public as the kind of in a way perhaps yeah. the, the vanguard of that and so on. But and, and again, you sort of think of like them having a certain moment uh, like in the seventies and to an extent the eighties, and then certainly this isn't true of all of them. You know, you can talk about like I you know you can talk about a number of examples that sort of break that mold. I would say you know. Point to all kinds of places. Uh, the Royal Exchange in Manchester, where I live, uh, hasn't necessarily, you know, it breaks that mold. Obviously, the public does, you know, the, the bush, let's say, in Shepherd's Bush does, you know, we could, we could, we could say there's examples. But the point is, I remember being struck a few years ago by, I went on holiday to, um, uh, I went on holiday to Scotland, and because I'm a bit of a, a dweeb, when I'm on holiday, <laughs> I, I will sometimes go see a play in a theatre I've never been to before. So, so I went to the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow, which was undergoing a renovation. Citizens Theatre is typical, you know, absolutely typical of that sort of scene, that sort of milieu. And what was interesting was uh, because they're going through a, 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 you know, a redesign and a rebuild, they've got in the bar all these posters from the shows they did in the 70s and 80s. Oh, nice. Yeah, man. And so one of the big posters, I'm, I'm having a drink before the show, and one of the posters I see is for a Marquis de Sade season. 
in about 1972. So they're literally, they're doing 120 days of Sodom. They're doing, you know, philosophy in the bedroom. They're all these mad fucking shit. Just oh, like, I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to... No, yeah, no, totally, that. totally. No, that yeah. the what was not just a season of Desaad. Yeah, a season so, of Desaad, man. Uh, did, they, did they toss in Marat Saad while they were at it? <laughs> I mean, you sort of hope so. Now, yeah. the question becomes, what am I going to go see? What am I waiting to watch in 2018? Oh, God. And, and the answer is, A Long Day's Journey Into Night. No. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. No, but like, a, a like, good play. comparison. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, if you had the choice, what would you... Yeah. Can, that one, could, can, we, can you run that one instead, please? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, weird. Do you know what I mean? I don't, know what, I don't even know what's going on. Now, the point is, like, I think sometimes we sort of flatter ourselves about the idea of, you know, we're, we're artists, we're progressive or whatever. Like, we're always getting more progressive. We're always moving on. But actually, like... The theatre industry or, or the theatre scene, mm. I think, I think in the in the kind of Anglo-Saxon world, for want of a better expression, it's had moments, and 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 yeah, if you look at like that that seventies moment where all these buildings are being set up, where you know actually they're keying in to a moment in the in the early to mid seventies of genuinely genuine political and social radicalism, yeah. which is cutting through America and the UK, and that you know. That's not happening now. Like largely, they've got those same audiences, just forty years older, wanting to watch <laughs> what in England we would call Sunday night television style things. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. you know, uh, sort, of, sort of like Downton Abbey fucking business, you know. Um, and so, I think one of the interesting questions about this pandemic is like, you know, everyone's talking about we can't go, you know, we can't go back to what was before. So what does that mean for us? Do you know what I mean? What is that? Yeah. Given that we've got all this resource in these buildings, like what can we do with them that's more interesting than that? And I think this is the, this is the kind of uh, you know that's that's the the you know million dollar question, so to speak. That's when you were talking about seeing the poster and like sort of these being inflection points earlier in the history when some some true progress is being made before it was set in stone. First, I I always think about how yeah all this stuff was going off in the early seventies. And like encountering it and realizing that <laughs> sometimes it feels like the culture like stopped moving forward right before I was born and then started to like <laughs> start slipping backwards. But I like the other night I just I got a bug at my butt to to watch the 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 old nineteen eighty nine Tim Burton Batman. And the, the, trust me, this is going somewhere, it's gonna loop back, I swear. <laughs> and like on the one hand, I decided to watch it on my phone. And, you know, the phone's beautiful. It's got this, like, probably a screen that's better than my television in terms of pixel density. And, like, the colors are coming through. And I, I just really started to get into what was in the frame, weirdly enough. I started studying the frame even more than I would have. It's maybe been, like, 10, 10, 15 years since I watched that movie. I, you know, I don't know. Once in a while, I'll, I'll get a bug on my butt to watch it. But one thing I was struck by was, like, the the I started zeroing in on the fact that, like, Burton – had Billy D. Williams cast as Harvey Dent, so he had he had a, a, a you know really well established black actor in a role that was meant to become something that the studio stopped that from happening ultimately, uh, but also to start becoming aware of like how he was composing like when there were when there were black faces in the frame when there was you know when when there was someone who was Asian in the frame and that they were in 1989 all the sort of stuff that, you know, Hollywood's very much struggling right now, it was happening then too. And it's just like the culture keeps on like idling and yeah, like yeah. not, not 
pushing past a point. And and here you are talking about these these theaters, these institutions were like had the stones to dive in and like, oh, we're gonna do a season of the sod. And and then 40 years later, it's like, we're going to do a season of all the classic hits that's not going to perturb anybody because yeah. people just want to want comfort and, and, and they don't want to, I don't know. Yeah, man, I think that's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's like, obviously, you know, it's, I, I always feel really lucky, especially during a pandemic, you know, incredibly important and, and very serious and senior artists who I look up to, you know, people are like now working in Amazon warehouses, all that. Like, so mm. I count my lucky stars and I do all that stuff. And I, I'm lucky enough and I have the privilege of being able to make still work, which is about international politics and international stories. And it gets an international audience. I think part of being serious about that privilege is like, you know, sometimes when we have these conversations internationally, there are, there are, we we're, we almost like, you know, there can be false friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, it can, it, almost like we're talking. That's why I was trying to be careful when I was talking about the parallels between the US and the UK. And, you know, there are similarities, there are differences, you know, this kind of stuff. Like, so, so for instance, one slightly facetious point would be when you talk about um, Asian folks in that film, obviously when we say Asian people as a minority of this country, we're talking about different people. Do you know right. what I mean? We're talking about people from different, we, you know, we're talking about um, largely Pakistanis to a lesser extent Bangladeshis and to a lesser extent Indians in this country or, or people who fought four generations of all were from there or or perhaps even me, like, you know what I mean? Like I would identify as being Asian in some sense in this country, being from the Middle East, because it basically is to do with the fact that, you know, uh, uh, it's to do with the, his- the historical differences. To do with obviously America's, uh, you know, you guys have a have a, a history of race and colonialism and so on, and and we have a history where we were the we <laughs> we were the bloody heart of the whole imperial fucking. Do you know what I mean the whole, yeah. the whole the whole project? Um, and so I think, but I do think what's really really interesting that you point to is that moment in the nineties because again, you know, there's one thing we were looking at in, 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 in work we're doing at the minute. I mean, my company, we do, I suppose our, our sort of like, found, we've got a manifesto on our website and stuff. And our, our sort of like founding vision really is about um, just sort of thinking that the, the, the border between kind of, uh, the border between uh, theatre, art, politics and just thought is a bit more permeable than perhaps it's granted to be like to be a to be a a a a political artist doesn't necessarily mean that you're sort of like representing some political truth artistically like again these things can be in 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 slightly weird kind of uh, uh angles to each other um and like uh you know, we were, at the minute we're working on this podcast series. Um, that's this, this a couple of episodes old, which is about the history of like kind of uh, the the anti-racist radical history of of uh, you know people from the Caribbean, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, in Britain, and in the colonies for about two three hundred years. The point I'm making is that '90s question is like you know that was a you can look at that moment and uh, and perhaps theatre wasn't riding the high tide of radicalism there but that was a moment where you know it, it was it was the high tide of Clinton and Blair and these people you know and the high tide of globalization and this kind of stuff so so for all for all the kind of the problems of that of that of those of those politics it did it did make a certain kind of sense that people who are minorities with heritage in the global south um would feel like the wind of history was in was was in their sails. You know, it struck me. You know, the other day I was talking to someone. I said, like, well, you know, my, my family in Iran. Obviously, there were 
terrible, terrible sanctions on Iran. There's also a terrible, terrible government for a variety of, you know, the intersection of that basically means that uh, the intersection of the oppressive government and Western sanctions means that to, to pluck an example, there was periods where one of my aunties struggled to afford her diabetes medicine. Yeah. Mm. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means I'm on a WhatsApp group, whatever, that I usually ignore with like a ton of cousins in Iran, in the US, in the UK, whatever, you know, talk, sending pictures of their fucking kids or whatever else. But like, what it means at that moment, then then people are like, okay, well, how can we get this medicine to that auntie there? Do you know what I mean? And that's that lived experience of having that kind of migrant global South background. So, so in a way, like... You, you know, at that moment, almost like it was, it was true that we that perhaps our communities felt like we were the future. Now, we weren't the future for that long. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, obviously, obviously, the US feels slightly different because of the recent presidential election. But certainly, you know, um, I mean, I, I mean, you, I mean yeah, me, like man. you tell me, uh, it, 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 it's. I mean, technically, I think the term is like revanchist, right? Yeah. There's been this revanchist streak in in politics particularly in in the american south and and sort of like the the confederacy here and that culture you know is not limited to you know the the original confederate states it's everywhere it's here in california it's it's up in idaho it's in all these places and it's been just biding its time and waiting and and during the 90s it started to feel increasingly alien to all of us but just the dynamics of the past 20 years you, you know the 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 it, you know it re-sparked with the war on terror it re-sparked yeah. then uh it was given oxygen um it was given a chance to militarize um and despite the fact that demographically and 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 I think the the big thing is demographically things have shifted here in the states towards us just functionally being pluralistic right um you know white folk are becoming a plurality but inching away from being a actual majority and in so doing you know there's a lot of folks a lot of white folks who just do not understand what do you how do you live in a society where you aren't the majority where you don't have supremacy and they're freaking the fuck out and i don't know if you can calm someone down when you say hey we're we're going to be eroding your power now uh it's just what's going to happen um in a society that is inherently unequal in a society where there always has to be someone on top and someone someone underneath because that's how we've structured it right like of course yeah. they're they're totally freaking out about that and it's it's unnerving to someone who grew up in that period of time in the 90s when and in a place I was in the bay area where you know we it was it was very mixed yeah. you know uh e- the east bay of of the San Francisco bay area was you know it was it was 
Oh, I mean, I've never quite, been, but it was a very much, very much the cultural vanguard as so far as I it, it was super cultural vanguard to the point where, like, you know, you went twenty minutes outside of town and you wound up in something that felt like, for lack of a better term, Hickville. And you know, you'd get even as a white kid, you'd get stares because you know your hair was purple or something like that. Yeah. And God forbid, you were a kid of color, but there was still tension. Like you know, I remember walking around. You know, and being so worried about like my my black friend Corey. Um, God, that phrase sounds absolutely awful. This is a kid I grew up with, but I was hyper conscious that Corey was always in danger from the authorities when we were all hanging in a group. That if if that if we were being rowdy as a group of mostly white kids, Corey would be the one who would get targeted if something happened. Yeah. Um, and so. You, that just starts kind of also getting grained into you. And this this weird like layering of well the the culture's telling us, you know, united colors of Benetton and like we're all equal yeah. and everyone's supposed to and yet the system is very much like, you know, if if someone fucks up, it's your brown friend, it's your black friend yeah. who's gonna get fucked first. Yeah. Um and and then watching how that's just been doubled down on for 20 years yeah so i mean it's super interesting that's the name of the game right now and it's the the big the big question like sorry i cut you off oh no no i was done so yeah no i was just gonna say like i mean it's and it's interesting again where there are similarities with the uk and the us is that like look so you know i'm sure you know the numbers in the us better than i do but like obviously one of the headlines with the trump vote uh was that you know if you break it down geographically um there was that hilarious moment where um, I, do, you, I, do you remember the row between the governor of California and Trump? And it was something to do with cities of sanctuary. I can't exactly remember the ins and outs, but in any case, oh, there's so much. Junk. Yeah, Trump, yeah, that Trump, was that Trump, was Trump, one of the things. Yeah, Trump, Trump said something like, you know, uh, we're going to cut off all your federal dollars, and the governor of California or whoever the fuck it was was like, well, motherfucker, we subsidize the rest of the US. <laughs> oh, we do. Oh, what are you actually talking about? Do yeah, you know? yeah, no, like where I mean, there was definitely a moment in in the last couple of cycles where. As a Californian, sitting like, oh, we are the seventh largest economy in the world, yeah, or yeah, fifth yeah. largest, depending on what yeah. year it is. We don't need y'all. Like, yeah, exactly. we're here for the nukes. Yeah. Full <laughs> stop. Exactly. You don't have the nukes. We're not here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, uh, for sure. And where there is a parallel is that, of course, in the UK, if you so you know, in the US, if you break up the Trump vote geographically, basically everywhere that's in an economic surplus that pays for the rest of the country yes. voted voted Clinton. Everywhere that that, that that was in a deficit voted Trump, more or less. Yeah. In a similar way. Uh, but with some, with some, obviously because the racial politics of it complicates it with some, with some distinctions there. But in any case, in the UK, you found a similar thing. So you found um, London, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, Liverpool. You know, ignoring Scotland for a second, because you know the headline is nowadays Scotland is a different country, so yeah. that usually works differently. But yeah, those cities where where actually some of the poorest people in the country live. You know, but are cities that are kind of in an economic surplus with the rest of it that feel like they're or used to feel like they were the future, those were exactly the places that voted remain. You know, whereas places that were older, whiter, uh, less educated were the, the places that that, 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 that that voted leave. Of course, the problem we have in this country is the vagaries of the British parliamentary system mean that there are a ton more 
um, even though there aren't that many more people in those places, there are a ton more parliamentary constituencies there than there are in, you know, London and Manchester and wherever else. And you get, I mean, I was struck at the last election, you know, um, for my sins, I went, I went, I went out and knocked on doors and asked people to vote for the Labour Party. And uh, you know, there was, no, you know, there's no, there's no point doing that where I live because right. I live in a, I live mm. in a, a multicultural part of Manchester, so that's that's the way everyone votes, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, we went to a small uh, post kind of industrial town outside Manchester, and I was struck by this really interesting feeling of being there with a group of quite diverse ethnically young people. So a couple of British Asians, um, three uh, white kids. And um, we're knocking on doors. Now these kids, they've got degrees, yeah? They're very typical of that kind of activist space. So they've got degrees. They've got no, they haven't got hope in hell of ever buying their own home. Do you know what I mean? They're living in, they're, they're about 32, 31. They're living in shared housing. And we go out to this place, which is more, which is a small post-industrial town. And we're knocking on doors of people who don't have degrees, but do own a business and two houses, let's say, you know, our older whites who used to vote for the Labour Party. We're knocking on doors and saying, we should, you should vote Labour. And the argument, you, you know, the, the kind of thing you would hear back is, well, you're, what in England we would say, you're, you're middle class kids who don't know how the world really works. That's our use. That's our English usage of middle class. You know, you're you're graduate. You know, you're students who don't know how the world works. And I was really struck by this. A lot of the old kind of um, political identifiers around social class and these things have be- just become radically unmoored. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They become completely sort of uh, cut off from reality. Really. Yeah. I mean, everything's been. There's. There's this. It feels like mm, I'd love to get your take on this. I feel like our political, cultural, and economic realities are getting increasingly unmoored um, globally. That there's this massive disconnect between where the money actually goes, what's actually being built. And what people are, you know, professing themselves to kind of want, and that there's there's just this this point where when you watch all this money flowing into things like, you know, cryptocurrencies because people are trying to get theirs, then it just sits there and just gets bloated and bloated and bloated with more and more real dollars, and none of it winds up circulating. So. There's just this massive extraction and transfer of wealth into these kind of dragon hordes, or there's these massive extractions of wealth into just these super opulent playgrounds for the rich. Yeah, no, I'm for sure, man. Can I? Can I just? Sorry, I've got someone at the door. Let me just. Oh, get please. Rid of them. I'm back in one second. <laughs> no, no worries.
Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. No worries. Yeah, and I was just going to say, what a great question. I mean, um, do you want me to answer that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, like I said, I'd love, I'd love to get your, your take in the movie that also brings us around to the, the concept of, of, of the show. Yeah. So. so, I mean, like this this kind of question is like, it really gets its hands on. You know, I do think of myself as a political artist. I would very quickly say this is a caveat. Um, over the past couple of years, and this makes me sound like a real crabby old guy, but I would hasten to add, I'm, I'm only 35, however crabby I am. Um, in any case. Uh, Don't worry, I'm, cra- I, I'm, o- I'm older and crabbier for both of us. Okay, so. Very good. <laughs> like, I, you know, I've heard a lot of chat in England, especially um, over the past couple of years about the idea, of, but, but internationally as well, but the idea of a sort of renaissance as, of political theatre. And I see a lot of this work and it, it strikes me that it's not very good as theatre. It doesn't really deal with politics in any depth. Um, and I think for me, what I try and make work about, and you hopefully you see this in Rich Kids, is I am interested in these m- much more sort of troubling structural political things that are going on in the world than, you know, preaching to an audience about how they need to recycle more. I mean, they do, but yeah. there's a limit to how interesting that is. So this, And, this and how much about the, their recycling actually does when it's the companies who are the problem. Exactly, anyway, yeah. exactly right. Or like Aram Code, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in, in any case, like, I, I think there's, 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 there's something really interesting going on. Though, that on Mooring, you talks about there's two things going on, I, I would say. I think on, 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 on one level, what we're dealing with internationally nationally is so i don't i don't know i i uh uh i've been uh reading a bit of the old sort of political theories so like the tocqueville and people like this you know who obviously wrote oh, about yeah. the american revolution the french revolution he talks about how it's possible to have a democratic revolution but with but with anti-democratic consequences um uh and so the idea of like you know that made me think a lot about trump and brexit and modi and and erdogan and and these kinds of things in the world thinking like the idea of the these 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 administrations these regimes these politicians who think that you know uh they they win some sort of democratic mandate to some degree but then they use that to sort of suspend democratic norms so there's some special moment of the will of the people you know, so for instance, in England, the Brexit referendum, that's one vote and then everything else has to be seen in that regard, you know, or, or, or let's say in the Trump administration, he can capture, you know, the electoral college in a certain quite, uh, 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 how do you say, um, a certain um, actually quite lucky way from. Yeah, him. no, I mean, he, the um, man, the man spent. The man, the man is a very lucky man, but his luck only ever goes so far every yeah, time. Like exactly, any any follow that guy's life, and it was always obvious he was going to be a one term president. The damage is going to be done, you know, like yeah. to the structure as a whole. But like the dude, he goes on a he's a quintessential gambler. He goes on a hot streak and then he craps out and he keeps on doubling down and then he's in debt and then he just doesn't pay his debts. That's what he does. He just doesn't pay the bill. Yeah, no, for sure. And then there's, I think in interlocking with that, there's this economic point you talk about that basically, I mean, and this is no, no news to anyone on this podcast, I'm sure. Like, we have a capitalist economy which is like structurally and secularly, if that's a word, fucked and has been for for a number of decades. Yeah, like and you you know you pays your money, you takes your choice. Like when that structural problem began is uh, you know a matter of which particular school we sort of sign up to. But but I mean there there you know for instance for instance. Uh, the UK has had basic, by any measure, the UK has had a crisis of productivity for about 40 years. 
Do you know what I mean? Like the, the level of productivity in the economy has kept going down and down. In this country, and it's not just true of this country, in this country, it's much, much uh, easier to get a mortgage to buy a house than it is to get finance to start a business, which is, you know, when all else is said and done, is not a hugely sensible way to be ordering a capitalist economy, you know? Yeah. Uh, where, where people are supposed to be able to do some capitalism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So you end up yeah. With- yeah, so like you say, we, we we end up with this very like um, uh, wonky, unmoored world where the the very words we use to describe things don't seem to have purchase on what they used to be able to describe anymore. And I suppose that is that does bring us into this discussion of rich kids because primarily my route into that show, what I found really interesting was one of these unmoorings, which is you know the way that um, so. You know, there's a there's a wonderful line um, from uh, one of the Indian post-colonial theorists, uh, 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 Pata Chatterjee. He once referred to the development of democracy in India as as politics in most of the world. You know, because obviously that's a country of a billion people. So yeah. most people who live under a democracy are Indians. That just is what it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think we still in the West, however progressive we are, sometimes we. Even, even when we're anti-racists, it's easier to be an anti-racist about minorities in the West than it is to deal with the fact that, like, most people are Indian or Chinese. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That, 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 that there is a huge part of the world where, which is shaping the future, which uh, we're, uh, the kind of post-colonial world where all kinds of things are going on um, that we need to, to think about. And that, that can sound a little bit dry when I say it like that, but... But um, what's interesting about that is specifically this layer of countries like like Iran that the show's about, but also China, Syria, Zimbabwe, a whole bunch of countries that um, are like unraveling at the seams, countries that um, come off the back of some sort of, let's say, anti-imperialist or anti-colonial either revolution or guerrilla war or something like this, do you know what I mean? And that, and that there are large parts of the world, whether it's certain parts of Central Africa, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's certain parts of uh, Central Asia, which which are just where the, the structure of how those countries work is coming apart at the seams a little bit. And I suppose, for me, the really interesting thing about that show was was trying to find a way of telling that story and going, that's not some exotic crazy that's happening over there. But actually, we are hugely complicit in it. As in, as in, it was a global system that brought these, 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 uh, this world into being in the first place. And in the second place, we're all living in this world that's coming apart at the seams. Whether we think about, you know, the election of utter lunatics in 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 what were once the sort of sensible countries of the world, or whether it's about, uh, you know, pandemics ripping through the world. Whether it's about climate change, where, where we all know. Yeah some shit needs to change very quick you know so yeah that, that, yeah we're 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 bound together mm-hmm. we're 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 inextricably bound together and we we sink or swim um and and there's also this sense of that with the the class that has become unmoored you know sometimes in my in my darker moments i think well the rich know that everything's beyond fucked and unsalvageable. So they're just partying hard because what else are you going to do when the world's ending? That's, that's my darkest modes. And then you look at the, at the sheer opulence, which is like reflected in some of the characters, the real people in this show. And, and what's funny is how flat that world is too. Like there's the, 
the the kids who are at the center of of this i mean they were adults but like you know like you know because of the way the flashiness of the life we all think of them as kids because we're behaving in a juvenile fashion the kids at the center of this show they're indistinguishable from the kids who are on like sunset boulevard you know or 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 running around in beverly hills like they're yeah. they're the same you know they they take the same photos you know that yeah. you scroll through and it just like i i mean as i'm scrolling through in the show through the instagram you've got and like looking through the accounts or like flipping through some of the hashtags that you sent us off to look at it, i'm just like all oh, this this could be anywhere yeah any yeah, other sure. people yeah yeah for sure and i mean it's you know uh it's um it's something that we need to that that recycles back to your 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 previous question like i mean you know uh we live in a you know whether we were talking about the us or whether we're talking about the uk and the eu like you know we, we're living in economies which are as opposed to how a capitalist economy is supposed to work increasingly rent seeking economies mm-hmm. um you know where from you know 20 30 years like property values or i suppose real estate values are the only thing that you can uh that that uh you can you can surely sort of bet will keep going up um and uh and 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 actually like those that that rent seeking is absolutely bound up with the way that um people in for one you know as it used to be called third world regimes the way they're for you know for want of a better expression laundering their money you know what i mean like there's a there are large as i say i live in manchester you know mancunians would like to say it's england's second city i'm to be honest mancunians would like to say it's the capital of england but <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to them um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure uh, this isn't broadcast in, uh, in Manchester. So don't worry. Well, I mean, I'm from a city. I'm, I'm from a city. You know what England's like? Tiny country, but riven by regionalism. So I'm actually, I'm actually from another part of the north. I'm from Yorkshire. So we're like, a, you know, I'm very much. A, oh, they know. Much, they know. They know your trouble already. So yeah, yeah I'm very much an exile here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in any case, like uh, you know, in, in Manchester, you know, there's that large parts of the city center there are there are um you know well-to-do flats which remain empty and dormant mm-hmm. but sort of power the local economy that are owned by sovereign wealth funds based in like wherever you want man do you know what i mean Qatar, yeah. nigeria whatever um, and that's something that you see i know i don't know so much about oh it we've got US, it we've got it here we've definitely you know, vancouver we've... definitely sydney oh yeah you know what i mean we've got it here people to hear we have it people don't know we have it it's unlike sydney and vancouver like it is so hush hush even as we watch these glittering condos go up in downtown los angeles and they are expensive as fudge and there's luxury condo living popping up all over the place and we are in the depths of the worst homeless crisis we've ever had we've got tent cities piling up in every neighborhood and just empty units all over the place. I saw the math uh, before the pandemic, and there's something like, and, and of course, you got to aggregate it across the entire country, but there's something like seven housing units for every person who's unhoused. Wow. 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 Right? Yeah. Like it's just a ridiculous. Now, they, they may be nowhere near where the people are unhoused because people are building stuff in, you know, the suburbs of Vegas or like, you know, deep out in Riverside County where like there aren't any jobs for anybody, but it's just categorically crazy. And, you know, 
all of it. It's yeah, it's the seeking of rent because it's the only sane bet. For yeah. if you've got money, the only the only two things you can do these days if you have money are either invested in real estate and you're lucky if you can. I have some friends who've got who've got a, a you know upper middle class working stiff money, right? Consultant yeah. money. And they're like, oh, I can't find a house to buy. Like I'm trying to buy a house, but it's too expensive for me. And this is someone who makes like like three times what I make. You yeah. know, the, the friend that I go to for loans when I like, we got, <laughs> like, we've got a business expense. Can I borrow money off of you to make it happen? Um, and they're like, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with money. So I'm just, you know, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin because that's the only thing to do. So they're shoving the money in that, or they're shoving, people are shoving money into Pokemon cards, yeah. like anywhere they can get speculative. And it doesn't it doesn't fix the problems. It doesn't make culture, and it, yeah, it I mean, feels like a mass madness. I don't know. Absolutely, and like I, I, I do think there's something. You know, this, <laughs> I apologize for like turning your podcast into a political economy podcast. No, no, I, no. I, you know, like, like they can suffer. This is what I. This is what I enjoy talking about. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sorry, team. Know, please keep on giving money to the Patreon. I swear to God, we'll discuss yeah, yeah, about yeah. VR next week. So but it's super interesting. I mean, I, I think there's there is a parallel. You know, I mean, with the with the sort of storytelling aspects here, is it is really interesting that like like you said that that rent seeking feeling of like you know uh the boomers buying houses that kind of thing like after all that is just like that idea of like uh this economy the the, the political situation right, right now being about seeking rent it's like well well how like you know uh how is jeff bezos you know the second richest man in the world or whatever or the richest whatever he is today i don't i don't know it's a horse race who, who knows well, yeah. because 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 you know when you look at the, how amazon actually works it basically it, it owns a huge amount of logistics doesn't it so so effectively oh, yeah. effectively like you know as people joke about it's like a sort of it, it is a sort of grocers which is um you know sat on top of uh which which is subsidized by the biggest uh digital infrastructure company in the world do you know what i mean so effectively yeah. the the way you join the elite in 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 the 21st century in the early part of the 21st century is you invent something like uh you invent a bit of infrastructure like an uber or an amazon cloud services or whatever else and then you charge rent on it do you know what I mean that's that's like that's like the dream, and I suppose, and so then you go, uh, at the, which dovetails you in with the people who can charge for Uyghur slave laborers to make your T-shirt for you, or the people that can charge that can that can take a rent off the oil that's under the ground in Qatar or wherever else, or you know in the case of Iran, the natural gas and the oil and blah 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 nigeria the oil whatever and um, and i suppose like one of the bits we had really f a lot of fun with in the show was like you know you're talking about those kids and stuff like i remember when we were writing it i was saying to the team like this is really like classic theatrical stuff because in a way like there is something really classically theatrical about the idea of these whatever you think of them whatever kind of people they are to some degree impressive I mean, I say men because they are largely men. Do you know what I mean? But these impressive, to some degree, as evil, you know, maybe impressively evil, but in any case, impressive guys who've like, you know, tough, have uh, carved out a seat at the table of like, you know, world power. And then they have these kids, do you know what I mean? Who have nothing but daddy's money to play around with. And um, and, and it's just real classic stuff because in a way it's, it's, it's Fredo in the first two Godfather movies. Do you know what I mean? Or it's yeah. uh, if you remember him, or it's it's, it's Prince Hal in Henry the Fourth, or it's this kind of stuff. Oh yeah, there's there's something terribly Shakespearean about the the 
cultural and the familial setup. And I mean, that's the thing is like for, for us, as much as we've gone into like, you know, you know, grand political rant at the end of the day, politics is people and they're that show you've built despite the fact that it's like running over multiple technological platforms that there's, there's a bit of the broadcast to it in, in, in how you're delivering the show via YouTube, the, the writing and the actual story is such that it is just so deeply human, you know, like despite the fact that like, you know, at least one of the characters is, is really comes off as, as a bit of an ass, like, <laughs> like, I also feel for them, you know, like, and like it, it and in, in the way that like, I don't know, I haven't gotten a succession or something like that, but like, yeah. or, but like thinking of the Godfather, right. I mean, like yeah. objectively speaking, you look at the characters in the Godfather, like who gives a crap? These are terrible yeah. people, but we've all been terrible at some point. And, and you start to just, you know, get into like these people just, they found this little tiny oasis with each other. You know, this little thing that had meaning, uh, the tiniest little thing, a relationship. And yet here's the whole world, at least the way, you know, you've structured like Thank you. the story. Thank you. That, that means yeah. a lot, man. That means a lot. I mean, that's, I suppose because, because this, 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 this group of, you know, this, this sort of like uh, body of work, this trilogy of shows that we're making, because, because it's about the intersection of contemporary technology and contemporary politics. I think one of the effects we're trying to achieve with the audience really is that, that feeling of deep diving into something so that means a lot that you know you're you're sort of um experiencing it in that way so thank you yeah well i mean and that's the thing that's impressive and why you know why talking to you felt important was that it is so easy particularly with you know pieces of political theater with agitprop with anything that's going to sometimes i'm watching stuff these days and and uh, a little bit less on the theater side, I think, to some degree, because a lot of the theater I'm getting exposed to is immersive and site specific, and people are are really experimenting with form more than they're necessarily tackling a subject. But then when I see people tackle a subject, I almost it, it can feel like, and this is a lot in film and television, it can often feel like here's a checklist, here's here are the here are the thematic topical beats we have to hit and we're going to have the characters say the right thing and we're going to declare where we're at but it winds up just draining away any of the the messiness that makes it human uh any of the complexity and it just kind of really just kind of falls flat kind of like this limp fish that's just like lying there and and to to watch something and particularly the way that you know, you've got this thing structured so that we're going through the Instagram and we're kind of revealing, you know, it's, it's not this grand, like, Oh, you're, you know, you have all the agency, you're stitching it together, but instead it's this very natural, like, yeah, I'm scrolling back on the timeline. And as I'm scrolling back on the timeline, I'm starting to see how this all came together. Um, this very natural progression that has all that messiness that has all that, you know, blood and gunk. And, and, you know, the, you were saying, you know, it's, it's really hard for people in the West to like relate to the fact or to just kind of process the fact that like, yeah, you might be an anti-racist like in America, but most of the people in the world are either Chinese or Indian. 
And like to remind yourself of the humanity of someone who's half a world away, particularly when all you have is like the mediation of a screen, you know, it's, we're not hardwired for it. It's, it's too big. It's too big for the brain to, to handle. Like we just start to shut down. And yet if we don't find ways, if we don't tell stories that, that that create some kind of neural pathway between us and the folks on the other side of the world altogether we're we're fucked so yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know how to other than saying we're fucked yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no for sure well i mean i mean that's what we're trying to do really i think and i think um you know i'm struck more and more by 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 how how important that is you know um i think uh this you know like yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of this show, that idea of like stuff that feels too big for your brain to hold is very much one of the things that it's about. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of like that idea of trying to hold a historical structure or trying to hold like the idea of how uh, the oil industry works in the Middle East. Like you know, we talk about in the show, we say that you know, oil is related to the plastic that you're watching the plastic that makes up your phone that you're watching the show on. And the thing is that, 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 that phone, if you throw it in a landfill, it'll take 25,000 years for that, for that, for that phone to kind of break down. And the thing is 25,000 years is a long time, man. And it's, it's a, it's a difficult, it's something that as human beings, we struggle to get our heads around. We, as we talk about in the show, you know, human beings are good at getting their heads around two sorts of time scales. So either, two or three generations either way, you know, you, your grandchildren, you, your grandparents, or we're good at eternity. So like Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But 24,000 years, which is as far into the future as, well, it's something like twice as far into the future as the building of the Great Pyramid at Giza is into the past. Yeah. Feels very difficult, like, to take responsibility for. Um, and I think, I just think, I think, you know, part of my, I'm a big, um, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big believer in when you're trying to make political work, my audience are clever people, man, they're not idiots. I don't have anything to tell them that they don't already know, really. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I just have a feeling that things are more complicated than we think they are. And so I think my job is about trying to share that feeling of complication and texture and things like that with people. I feel like that's a great place for us to land. Um, Javad, where, where is it materializing next? Cause you've been, the, the piece has been on a, on a virtual tour. Is there something planned out? Yeah, there are. I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I don't know when this podcast goes out, but at the It'll end of this, on Friday, so yeah, so Friday and Saturday. If people are on German time, they could watch it through a German theatre called Tig Sieben's website. I think um, uh, on European Central Time, it will then be at the Cork International Festival in Ireland, and it will be back in the US later in the year. Um, we've got some dates in autumn already confirmed at PICA, which is the Portland Institute of Contemporary Arts. And then there'll be, you know, with a bit of luck and a following wind, there will be other US dates as well. Um, but yeah, it'd be great if people can tune in. And um, I should mention as well, this, as I spoke about before, the other thing we're working on at the minute is this is this podcast called The Colour of Our Politics, um, which is a series of about 10 episodes, each one of which does a bit of a dive into... Um, 
a uh, a sort of hidden period of like uh, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern people's history in the UK and the British colonies, and we've got some some crazy old stories, man. Some crazy old stories in there. If folks are interested. Well, you're a fantastic storyteller, so I think that that one's kind of a no-brainer. People should go check thank that you. out. Thank so, you. Javad, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Javad Alipour for being our guest on the show today. You can find links to all the projects he's talked about in our show notes, and uh, and that'll include a link to uh, the Javad Alipour Company's website where you can follow along and follow them on Twitter. Um, I'm still I'm still a big uh, Twitter advocate. Don't know why it's a hellscape from which we can never escape, but it's home. Um, all right, let's see. Um, you got a, you got a big dose of uh, of of discussion and uh, you know rant worthiness this week. So I won't I won't drive you drive you nuts with any more of of the big picture. But uh, checking in on a few things. Um, Number one, just as a reminder, if you haven't heard me say it before, save the dates, January 7th, 8th, and 9th of this coming year. We're doing the Summit and Festival in Pasadena at the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, We had our first meeting with the uh, production team over at the Playhouse uh, this week and, uh, the board is green. We've got, uh, programming and marketing and ticket sailing all to like, you know, put together. Um, the, the great machine is spinning up again. Uh, and I am, uh, I'm so tired that I'm like, Oh, we, we did, we did it. It's going to be really good to get that one done because it's kind of been in suspended animation. Um, what else is on? Uh, that's, that's a big thing from us. Um, there's a whole lot going on in the immersive verse right now. Of course, things are opening back up. A lot of people are doing conferencey stuff. Um, I've seen a decided uptick in traffic on the everything immersive group. Um, a lot of people are interested in things like the madcap motel. We're doing really good numbers on that. Um, geez, uh, the call sheet this week did some really good numbers because, um, Disney announced, um, the auditions are available for the Galactic Star Cruiser. So if you're an actor out there and you're looking to get uh, a job, um, you know, living in the Star Wars universe, uh, and 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 you're up for you're either in Florida, you're up for relocating to Orlando. Well, game on. Uh, you can find that uh, in the show notes uh, by linking through to the call sheet. And and if you don't know, um, if you've stuck around, you probably do. But just in case. You know, every, just about every week we put out the call sheet that has um, in job listings and gigs from everything from you know immersive gaming, you know, development positions working in Unity to you know performance gigs, you know, both long term and short term writing gigs. If you have, if you're looking for actors, if you're looking for writers, designers, directors, someone to run the front office. Please uh, drop us a line at callsheet, C-A-L-L-S-H-E-E-T, at nopersinium.com. Uh, the one trick is well, we, don't, we don't list the listings raw. Uh, we, we do like to link to 
um, a pre-existing link uh, listing online and we just do a summary. Mostly because if there's something, if someone sends us in a listing and there's like an inaccuracy in it or whatnot, um, we don't have the bandwidth to change it. <laughs> so uh, we rely upon folks to like just have it listed in their own spot. And also people are like, well, you listed this job. And like, oh, you've got this job up. It's like, no, 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 we're not listing the jobs. We're, we, we, we list them, but we're not listing them. You know what I mean? Uh, we're, we're, yeah. I'd love to hire everybody. That'd be neat. Just give me everyone's money and I'll hire everybody. See, I'd make a better billionaire. I'm just keep on telling everybody I'd be a better billionaire. Wish we could vote for billionaires. That'd be raw. Wait a second. That'd probably be a very bad idea. Never mind. Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> I just had a flashback to the past couple of years. Me and me and my optimism. Um, the review crew this week uh, uh, jumped into uh, a bunch of fun experiences. Next week, um, I, I don't know what time it's going to run. Uh, we're looking at a few things uh, because there's a preview show of Eschaton that uh, a bunch of folks are going to be going to. So we may do like a kind of a hangout thing in uh, the discord after the show uh, that, that may or may not sub in for the review crew that week and might have the review crew. I can't talk this morning. So just ignore that. Um, anyway, uh, for those of you, uh, the, the, those who signed up uh, to see the show this coming Wednesday to see Eschaton, uh, you're all getting in. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, by the time you hear this, the signups are closed. Sorry, we, we have to close it at some point and tell everybody what's up. So I'm transmitting the names today and uh, emailing everyone uh, probably this evening. Uh, there'll be like a nice little like, congratulations, you got in, like you'll be getting word uh, uh, from from the folks at Chorus Productions. And Eschaton does start their new run on the 15th. So if you didn't get in, uh, check it out. Uh, Eschaton's been doing uh, some of the most interesting work uh, when it comes to, because they're pioneered in the Zoom space. And I'm really curious as to what their setup's going to be uh, as we enter into uh, a new era. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else intelligent to say. I, I think, uh, yeah, my, my brain's just addled, so I'll let you go. Um, spread the word if you can. Everyone can. Please spread the word. <laughs> I ask that of you. Um, whether you're on the Patreon or not, uh, spreading the word really helps. It, I, it does. You don't think you have power or influence? You do. You really do. So if you like this episode, share it. If you didn't like it, pretend it didn't exist. All right. Um, I hope you liked the episode. I had a blast. Next week, uh, it's not in the can yet, so I won't say, but we've got a pretty special one coming up as well. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty special. Uh, the guests are awesome. And uh, it'll be like a kind of a, it's a kind of a big fat surprise. So, um, and that was not some clue. No, I don't have the people from my big fat Greek wedding coming in. So why'd you think that? Because you have a brain like mine? Cool. Let's go get coffee. The music for No Presidium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can help us out by going to patreon.com slash no presidium and keeping me in coffee, just like our sustaining backers do. That would be Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Sidney Guillory, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Emily Gillette, Samuel Mystery, Brittany, and Elaine. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time... 
thank you for wearing the mask.